morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a blessing to be with you. It's such a joy to have God's Word and to know Him and to grow in the knowledge of Him and to spread His knowledge across the world. Um, we are still doing the questions, as you can see on the lectern. If you have a question during the message, feel free to, um, or during the week, you can email the church, and we'll try to answer those best I can. And uh, I did receive a few questions last week that were, did you have any questions? And the, the answer is no, we didn't. So uh, I get a signal from the fellows in the back, and they say, we have questions or don't. And then I respond, but I will address it at the end so that you know I have not forgotten. So we're, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 15, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, and let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that it is truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to heaven. He is the gate to the kingdom of God. He is our righteousness. And I thank you, Lord, for... Uh, your promises that your gospel is true, that your covenant is sure, and that your love and your mercies are everlasting. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, and so we praise you. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit so that you could speak to our hearts and empower us to do your will, to give you honor and glory as you deserve in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I find it remarkable that God has all power, all powerful, all knowing, and he gives people the freedom to choose to receive him or reject him. Uh, we can have a boss who says, you don't get to say no, but God says he gives us the choice to say no. And there's consequences that stick with our decision. Just like a person who has treatable but potentially deadly cancer because of a fear of needles, they don't want to be operated on, and so uh, that's their choice, and they will suffer the consequences potentially. I think of world empires. They were made through bloody uh, conquests and through force, the kingdom of God is very different because it's founded on the love of Jesus Christ demonstrated on the cross, dying for sinners. We all have the freedom to choose to follow Jesus or to go our own way. And after, after deciding to follow Jesus at the beginning, we, our, our daily lives are filled with constant choices and decisions where we're going to honor God or choose to go our own way. I think about a, a, a man and a woman uniting in marriage before God. It formally begins with a ceremony and celebration, but how they look in a wedding dress or a tux is not an indication of what sort of spouse they're going to be. That's going to be proved day by day in, those, in service, in humility, in forgiveness, in grace, away from the public eye. And it's very much the same in following Christ. Having responded to his invitation to receive the gospel, to be born again, forgiven, and received into his family, we have the choice to walk worthy of him and to follow him and to serve him. There's a lot of things we're intentional about, like clothing. Clothing that you wear to suit the occasion, words that you say, how you say them, times that we hold our tongue and it's not appropriate to speak. The question is, are we also intentional to bring the name of Jesus and his wisdom and salvation into our daily experiences with, with ourselves and with other people. It would be a curious thing for a married person to be embarrassed to be seen in public wearing their wedding band 
And it would be a tragedy for people who know Jesus and follow him, who exclude him from their family and friends and coworkers because they're concerned about what other people might think or a blight on their reputation, when he is our life. The background of the passage that we're going to go through today was Jesus had been invited to a meal on the Sabbath at a Pharisee's home. He, had been, he was scrutinizing Jesus with the other scribes and lawyers there. Jesus healed a man. He showed it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. And he also noted how they all chose the best seats for themselves. They desired honor for themselves. And he exhorted them to humbly take the, the least seat, the lowest seat, uh, and be exalted rather than seeking the honor for themselves and being put to shame. It's those who humble themselves who will be exalted before God. And, and he said to his host, don't just invite people over who can repay you, people who are your friends or rich uh, people of honor in society, but the outcasts, those who are lame, maimed, poor, and blind, those who can't repay you, because that's the one upon whom God will bestow honor. And so we have to choose if we're going to uh, value the honor of men or honor from God. And I'm sure these words were very confronting and... Uh, probably seen as impolite by some who sat around that table because it involved personal sacrifice and cost. Jesus spoke to the greed and the selfishness of their hearts, and it was exposed before God. So, picking up the passage in Luke 14, starting in verse 15. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say, those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. Upon hearing the words of uh, Jesus concerning rewards of those who would be blessed at the resurrection of the just, having provided this glorious entrance into the kingdom of God, one of the listeners pipes up and says, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And it may be that this fellow diner, he was tracking and following with what Jesus said. He's like, right on, you know, to be included in God's kingdom, to eat bread, believing that the one who spoke with him was the living bread who came down from heaven, the one who, if you partake of him, you will live forever. It also could have been an attempt to change the subject from an awkward conversation. Jesus had just pointed out the greed and selfishness and ambition of honor of those who sought the best seats among them and kind of tried to sweep it away under empty platitudes. Now, we've all been in this social situation where it becomes a bit awkward. It's obvious there's two different opinions, and they're strongly held, and they're contradictory, and so we make an effort to kind of move the subject to something that everyone can agree upon. Like, won't heaven be great? Won't it be awesome? And it's like, well, of course it'll be awesome. But the, the bigger question is, are you going there, and am I going there? Have I taken up that invitation to be included in the kingdom of God. And Jesus immediately launches into a parable to instruct his listeners and us. And he says, a, a great a man, he's had this great supper, invited many. He's having this feast. Now, uh, I paused here because the invitations in Jesus' day were very different than they are currently. Of course, they didn't have email or SMS or uh, phones or the post, days, weeks, months perhaps before the planned occasion, a messenger would be sent from the master of the feast 
to personally invite each guest. And this messenger was received with hospitality. They could entertain him for hours as he gave, his, uh, he gave the invitation and they, they would say, oh, we're so pleased to be included and yes, we'll definitely attend. And he would respond back to the master after that initial receiving of the invitation because it wouldn't be until the dinner is ready, the supper is ready to be eaten, that the messenger would arrive and say, it's time now for the feast. In the book of Judges, we see a Levite going unannounced to his father-in-law's house was hosted for five days. And his father-in-law's like, oh, stay. It's too late. Stay for lunch. And so he stays the next day. And oh, it's, you know, you got to have some bread before you go. And so he has bread. And then, oh, well, you're a bit thirsty by now, right? Let's just hang out and have lunch. And oh, dinner's just a few hours away, you know, wait, just rest and refresh yourself. This was very common in that culture. Uh, King Ahasuerus, king of the Medes and Persians, he had a feast for 180 days. Uh, So these were quite, uh, most people didn't have 180-day feasts, but it was an open-ended thing quite often, and it was in the future, and because that date and time was not exactly precisely fixed, The second time is when the feast was prepared, you would have a messenger who says, now it's time to eat. So Jesus related what happened when the messenger sent at supper time to say all was ready. This is what happened in Luke 14, 18. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Everyone who initially agreed to attend the feast on the day made excuses why they could not come. Not only did everyone make excuses in one accord that they could not come, but these are particularly lame and pathetic excuses. The first said he bought land without looking at it, and he needed to go and see it. Now remember, this is supper time. This is like towards evening. No one would buy land in Israel or anyone else, anywhere else without seeing it first. Is it level? Where are, what's the actual uh, boundary of the land? Is there water? Has it been cleared of rocks? Is it farmland? Could I use it for, for flocks or for herds? The land is going to be the same in a week's time. Why not make good on your word? The second gives an excuse along the same line. Like, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. Well, you don't plow or farm at night. And who, this is a massive expense, five yoke of oxen. You haven't even checked to see if they could be trained, if they were trained and could work as a team, that they were suitable. It'd be like buying five cars and saying, I haven't test driven any of them and, and I can't come to the feast because I need to, to test drive them. Finally, one said, I've married a wife and cannot come. Wouldn't a wife be welcome at the home of a generous host? Why hide behind your wife to go back on your word that you gave in good faith? I found a, there's lots of quotes on excuses, but I found a couple I thought were very appropriate for this 
seen. Morgan says, back of an excuse is a lack of desire. Even better, one attributed to the evangelist Billy Sunday, he said, an excuse is a skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. These excuses showed this reality. All who were invited and agreed to come initially, they ultimately had no desire to go. It would have been better to admit it and just say, you know, I'm not interested. I really could care less about you, you or your feast. But they didn't say that. They tried to cover up their uh, lack of desire with excuses. They said, I cannot attend when they could attend, but they didn't want to attend. Interestingly, these three things can hinder people from following Jesus and receiving the gospel. Preoccupation with business, with possessions, with family. People can be caught up in expanding their own kingdoms and think little of the kingdom of God. Riches and cares of this life, Jesus said, they choke out the good word and make it unfruitful. For fear of offending family or friends or coworkers, belief in Jesus could be a blight on the reputation. People stay silent when they should speak. In the parable, the servant, he returned and reported that everyone made excuses. No one's coming. The master of the house was angry. He, they, were, they had been rude to him. They had insulted him. They were inconsiderate of his outlay of food and preparation. He had invited them. They had said yes. But now, at the last minute, they all say no. And so he instructed a servant, go out quickly, go out into the streets, the alleys, bring in the poor, the maimed, the lame and the blind, these needy strangers, the social outcasts, the ceremonially unclean, bring them all in. He refused to let his preparation go to waste. There was not going to be a rescheduling. He planned a feast and it was going to be a feast like no other. The master of the feast in this parable, he did exactly as Jesus had said to the man who hosted him. And this involved extra work. They had done all the work to prepare the food and to get the rest, the, the feast ready for the guests. But the lame, they would need help. They would need transport. The blind, they would need to be led. Therefore, there was this onus put upon the servant of the master to go out again, like he had already traveled and returned with the message. Now he had to go out again and bring them in, lead them, guide them. And the poor would need convincing that they were welcome at such a great feast. Luke 14, 22. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The servant returned from inviting the poor, the lame, the blind. He gives his report. He says, we've done what you said. There's still plenty of room. And the master told the servant, expand your search. Go into the highways. Go into the hedges. I'm happy to offer a seat to foreign travelers, people just passing through, aliens from the commonwealth of the land, to the homeless who are sleeping under shrubs. Bring them in. Compel them. That word compel, it means to urge drive, constrain, even to force. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used this word. He says, if you're compelled to go one mile, go two. Simon the Cyrenian, he was compelled by the Romans to carry Christ's cross. This doesn't suggest that uh, the servant of the master was to use force, to grab people, uh, to berate them, to coerce them. Uh, compelling is not coercion. He was to urge them 
and not to take no, an immediate no for an answer, but to keep pressing and just say, no, no, this is, you may not believe me that there's room at this feast for you, but the master has said to go out and find people just like you so you can come in and enjoy his bounty because it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. It would take some convincing for a perfect stranger, someone who's perhaps um, not even speaking the language well, to go to this feast where they don't know anyone. In the fairy tale Cinderella, she didn't dream of going to the ball because she didn't even have a dress. Like that was really important to her. And it would take a degree of faith for poor people, outcasts, travelers, foreigners to attend a gathering when they hadn't bathed in a month. Like they weren't ready. They weren't ready for this, but here the invitation came. Suddenly, unexpectedly, they've got this opportunity. Would they go or not? The master then emphatically says, everyone who declined my invitation, they will not taste my supper. David Guzik, a pastor, he applied the parable to Jesus' hearers in this way. He says, you admire the messianic banquet, yet are you ready to receive the invitation to come? Will you make excuses? The reality is God offered an invitation to the kingdom of God and eternal life first to the Jews his chosen people, to people who agreed to fear God, to keep his commandments and his covenant. However, when he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, and he had sent John the Baptist as a messenger before him, they all made lame excuses when it came to receiving Christ, to believing he was the Messiah sent by God. They complained that he ate and drank with sinners, that he was a glutton or a wine-bibber, that he was a deceiver. They accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. They looked to find fault with him rather than receiving him and humbling themselves before him as the king of kings. Since the Jews largely rejected Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God, God extended this invitation to the kingdom of God to Gentiles, to foreigners, to people outside the commonwealth of Israel, to, to the spiritually blind, to the lost, the wanderers, the homeless, to those lame and maimed by sin, to people outside the covenant that God had made with Israel, so that we could be, anyone could be, his adopted children, received to his family, and eat bread in the kingdom of God, being co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now the church that was birthed after Christ's departure in Jerusalem, it's supposed applied succeeding generations of believers who've taken up this charge to invite people into the kingdom of God, to come to the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for faith, for forgiveness and salvation. The people who inclined, who declined the invitation, they all made excuses. The servant of the master, I love his example, he doesn't make any excuses. He's like, it's been, he didn't say, Oh man, it was a lot of work traveling and dealing with these folks and, and now I've got to go out again and again because there's still room in your house. If you were told, if you were that servant who was told to compel others to come in, would you make excuses? I think at times this servant puts me and other believers to shame when it comes to sharing Christ and the gospel and we excuse ourselves. We say, I don't quite know enough to be serviceable or when I do that, that makes me a bit uncomfortable or others are better than it at me. Those excuses, they have more to do with a lack of a desire than anything. 
Do people still need the love of God in a pandemic? Do they still need the gospel even though we're not meeting in person on a Sunday at the moment? You know, there's still room in the kingdom of God. God wants you to come in and he wants you to compel others to come in. You can't force anyone to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but you can lay aside excuses and you can follow the leading of the Spirit to give his love and grace to all. One interesting thing I found about free passes or free tickets, they're not always easy to offload. Have you realized that? Have you ever been offered free tickets, but the re- it wasn't because they weren't valuable or you didn't care about what was happening, like you, you, you're fine with the footy and the grand final and this uh, concert, but the thing is, we value our time and our plans and what we want to do and what we've had planned more than this unexpected thing that's been given to us. I expect everyone who was traveling along that road was heading somewhere definite. They weren't just saying, man, I'm just waiting for an invitation to come through today. I'm a bit hungry. Be nice to be invited to a feast. No, they were coming home from work. They were heading to go to work. They were in the middle of something. They were in a conversation. But they were interrupted by this messenger who said, come to my master's feast. He's inviting you. And they had to humble themselves. And it wasn't because they thought they were worthy, but on the basis of this master and the message from this uh, messenger, they dropped what they were doing. They laid aside their plans and they went. And they were blessed. Our concept of evangelism, often it gets tied up with what we have to do and we lay aside God's sovereignty. Proverbs 16, 9, it says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. A man or a woman who is traveling that road, heading to the shops or going to work, they had no idea there was going to be an invitation to a great feast offered them. But God knew all about it. He caused the steps of that servant to intersect with that traveler or that foreigner, that spiritually blind or lame person he loves and desires to eat at his table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He knew they were going to intersect. He caused that to happen. The call of Christ is more than just to evangelize for conversions, but to make disciples. Of Jesus. There's room for all nations, tribes, and tongues in the kingdom of God. And God desires more than just offering hospitality for a day or for a meal, but to adopt lost sinners as his own children, that having been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, through faith in him, we will be his internal inheritance and he will be ours. I mean, how awesome is the gospel that God would invite us to join with him forever. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him. He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The meal is over with the Pharisees. Jesus is traveling, and as he's traveling, he's teaching the multitudes And after relating that parable with the the master who sent the servant to invite people to the feast, Jesus explained the cost and the conditions of following him. 
hate in this context, it's to love less. So he's saying unless we love Jesus more than our family, spouse, and even our own lives, we cannot be our disciple. We cannot be effective and fulfill the purpose that he has for us. Uh, Matthew 10, 37 and 38, it puts it a different way. It's, a, it's, a, it's the same thing, but it's just put slightly different for our understanding. It says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. As there's conditions of entry into a theater or a sporting venue or a wedding or a COVID-safe business, Jesus explains the conditions of following him, of being his learner and disciple. A tutor requires a fee. A theater requires a ticket. Jesus demands far more than that. He demands personal commitment and devotion for life beyond money and time. In that uh, funny and goofy movie, Napoleon Dynamite, there's this guy named Rex who... Uh, from two seasons in the octagon, came up with his own kind of uh, martial art, if you could call it that, called Rex Kwando. He offers an eight-week program for 300 bucks. He demands respect from his students, and he says, bow to your sensei. Like, yeah, I want respect, and I want you to bow before me. That's all he demanded. He said, you give me money, I'll give you this amount of time. And that's the depth of our relationship. We don't have a relationship. Now, Jesus, he wasn't looking for respect. He wasn't looking for a financial commitment for a few months, but to enter into an eternal relationship with him built on his love. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Jesus, it compels us in our service and our obedience to God. And our love for Christ, it ought to outweigh all other loves based upon the love that he has shown us. So we're responding to his love. Jesus continued, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This bearing of a cross, it was a clear allusion to crucifixion. It was a common practice of Romans to have the condemned paraded carrying the cross or the cross beam through a public square. It was to publicly humiliate them and to shame them and to show that they were indeed guilty and they were headed for execution. It was considered the most disgraceful and shameful way to die. Josephus, a Jewish historian, he states that Jews of high rank who were crucified, they had their status stripped from them before being crucified. I like what Matthew Poole wrote. He said, He that doth not willingly and cheerfully and patiently bear and undergo those trials and afflictions and persecutions which God in the way of his providence shall lay upon him, and bring him into, for my sake and my gospel, is not worthy of the name or reward of my disciples. We think of providence always as like, oh, it's a good thing. Providentially, something excellent happened. It was by the providence of God. Well, I like that Poole says, God puts trials, afflictions, and persecutions by his providence upon us and leads us into them. And those who endure... We're strengthened to endure through the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives. If we do not endure, then we're not worthy of the name or reward of his disciples. So the Father, he laid a cross upon Jesus and enabled him to bear it. Jesus leads and strengthens us to bear all trials and difficulties and pains for his sake 
and to follow him into eternal glory. We see that through his death and his resurrection. Luke 14, 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus explained the practical wisdom of counting the cost before a major building project or a great undertaking like building a tower or going to war. person who wanted to build a tower, they needed to consider what they could afford. It would be silly to draw up plans for a four-story house when you only have the money to buy a garden shed. You you spend your money to get these plans drawn, and they're great. And this massive foundation, you pour it, but you have no money for the walls or the plumbing or the roofing and electrical. People would walk by and go, man, I've seen a slab here for several years now. Are they ever going to finish this thing? And wonder what they were thinking when they started this project. For those who love Christ more than their own lives and reputation, mockery is a very trivial thing indeed. A king who's going to war, well, thinking about going to war, doesn't want to go to war, but is counting the cost, saying, all right, there's this great army coming against me. Do we muster the troops? Or because he has a fighting force and technology that's far superior to us, why don't we preempt him by sending some messengers to say, hey, we'd love to have peace with you. How can we have peace? What are, the, what are your conditions? And to see if they're agreeable. He, he wants to know if it's a fight he can win. If it's a fight he can't win, he needs to seek peace. For sinners facing the eternal judgment of God in hell, wouldn't it be wise for us to consider that our souls are in danger currently and gladly receive God's offer of peace and say, Lord, can I make peace with you because I am a sinner and am facing eternal judgment. Better to respond to God's gracious invitation to repent and follow Him while we can, rather than reject Him and suffer shame in the future. Paul exhorted Timothy and all who love Jesus in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. All who follow Jesus, we have uh, willingly enlisted. We have not been conscripted. We have not been forced to follow him. We have all chosen him. Uh, on our own, by our own will. And we should consider the cost of following Jesus with the untold blessings we'll receive and the eternal condemnation and shame should we refuse him or reject him. We will face hardship as Christians, as followers of Jesus, but in him is eternal strength, in him is consolation, and it's he who enables us to endure. 
Matthew Henry, he said, let them consider that it will cost them a life of self-denial and watchfulness. It may perhaps cost them their reputation among men and all that is dear to them in this world, even life itself. And if it should cost us all this, what is it in comparison with what it cost Christ? Right? All we have is a gift from the Lord. And Jesus has paid it all. We owe him everything. The cost of not following Jesus is far greater than the cost of following him. Jesus concluded those examples of counting the cost. So likewise, whoever of you who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And this word forsake, it means to say goodbye to. To say goodbye to everything we have and and to entrust our lives to him. Having been purchased with the blood of Jesus, we are not our own. We belong now to God, to Christ. And this is a life free from bondage. It's a, a life where we're free by God's grace to invest completely in others, in the kingdom of God and his service. We never have to wonder, what about me? Because uh, God's promised to supply all our needs. By faith in Christ, we say goodbye to our sins and our fears and our worries and our lusts. We can say goodbye to um, being preoccupied with money and food and clothing and the future. Our houses, our property, our portfolio, it all belongs to God. Our job, our reputation, our social status, that's His too. Our lives, our family, all that we possess, it becomes a gift from God. We are compelled to rejoice in the giver more than the gifts. I mean, how awesome is God to give us this life and eternal life as well? Luke 14, verse 34. It says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If salt should lose its flavor... It would be good for nothing. Salt's a mineral. It's among the more stable compounds, and it keeps its flavor. 60% chlorine, 40% sodium. There's a few interpretations of what Jesus said, and I believe they're, they're all valid and uh, useful. The first is the gathering of salt, that process, is not as refined as it is today. Minerals and impurities would be gathered up with the salt, and it would either dilute it or something would taste salty, but over time would lose its salty flavor. Now, no one would throw this impure, tainted salt into the field or into the manure pile, because you'd use that for fertilizer, because you, that's where stuff won't grow. You'd put it on the footpath where it'd just be trampled, just get rid of it in a safe location. Quality salt, as well, can lose its flavor by dilution. Jesus called his disciples the salt of the earth. If their witness was diluted by worldly philosophy and wisdom, they would fall short of his intended purposes. It's like if you put a teaspoon of, of salt into the dish and you're like, I can't even taste this. You're like, I, I need more. Or it, it just, it's not fulfilling its purpose for its use. And if we're like the world, then there's going to be no difference in flavor or in tone, or in lifestyle from us and the world. Jesus can also be playing on the fact it is unnatural for salt to lose its savor. 
if there was a substance believed to be salt that was sold as salt and it lost its flavor, then you could say pretty much uh, beyond question, that wasn't salt. It looked like salt, it was sold as salt, but it wasn't the real thing. It wasn't genuine. It was not pure. And in the same way, those who claimed to follow God and to love God, kind of like the people in that parable, they said, oh yeah, we'll, we'll come to your party, we'll come to your feast. But then when the time came, they refused it and made excuses. Um, it was like that. They had, they had uh, gone away from their commitment. And um, that's what some would call like a false conversion or perhaps an apostate, someone who's departed from the faith. Someone who at one point made a profession of faith, but later chose to abandon Christ and to depart from him. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. We have a little bit of the same in the Sermon on the Mount concerning salt, but a little extra. So I'd love for you to read that too. Matthew 5, starting in verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, Jesus speaking, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. As salt and light have clearly defined properties and they impact the world, so disciples of Jesus are to love God more than family and their own lives or their things, to take up their cross daily and to follow Him. We are those, as believers, who have counted the cost of discipleship or who are daily counting that cost and choosing to pay it, choosing to follow Christ We've made peace with God according to the conditions of the gospel. Salt's purpose in cooking is to season, it's to preserve. A light is lit to provide illumination for people so they can see and put it to use. He says you don't light a lamp and you put it under a bed or under a basket. If you light that lamp, it's so you can see, so you can work, so you can read. As a disciple of Jesus, if we'll live worthy of our purpose, we'll lay aside the excuses. We'll respond to that invitation of the gospel and faith. We'll choose to love Jesus above all, count the cost, bear our cross, and follow him. He says that a city on a hill, it cannot be hidden. One who's been born again by faith in Jesus, it will be evident to all because Jesus is now living his life through you. And so may our light so shine before men, so our good works will bring glory to God in heaven. We have a choice if we're going to be profitable for the kingdom of God. Jesus said, salt is good, but if it loses its savor, what good is it for? And do we want to be good in the kingdom of God or good for nothing? Will we let our saltiness be diluted by the world or let the life and love of Jesus shine through us? I guess that question is yet to be answered. And may we answer it in the affirmative that we will count the cost. We will take up our cross. We will choose to follow Jesus because he loves us and has given everything for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, your wisdom, and your power. 
that you have given us the freedom to choose and you enable us to follow you faithfully. Lord, forgive us when we have made lame excuses, when we have said, oh Lord, I'll do this, but then we've gone back on our word for some reason. Lord, I pray that we would be strengthened to keep our word with you. Thank you that your word does not return void. It always accomplishes your purposes. And I pray that we'd respond to conviction of the Spirit. We'd respond to your guidance and leading. We'd, we'd find the great encouragement and peace and comfort that you provide through the gospel, through your presence, through the peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, Father, that you are good. And your mercies are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. Make us those faithful servants, Lord, who are compelling others to follow Christ and to honor and glorify you now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless. I have the signal that we don't have any questions today, so go ahead and send them in throughout the week. God bless you and uh, much love.